Hello and welcome to another in a special series of podcasts from the Hoover Institution accompanying the launch of our new immigration journal, Peregrine. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and joining us today is John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. John, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. So, John, the prompt for this issue of Peregrine asks what the optimal level of immigration into the United States is, and you answer 2,002,052,035. Now, that's a definitive answer. It's also a somewhat tongue-in-cheek one. Explain the point that you were getting at there. Uh, yes. I, I was proud of myself for starting with a number. That was, uh, <laughs> they say econ- you know economists have a sense of humor because we use decimal points. Uh, <laughs> but yes, my so the two larger points. One is that um, picking a number like that is not a good way to decide this issue. Instead, we need to think about what kinds of people should come, on what terms should they come, what's the rules of the game, not uh, try to decide the outcome. And and I think we certainly all, you and I may decide, we can come up with a number, but this will always be decided by bureaucrats in Washington, and I certainly don't want them coming up with a number. Uh, the other point is that on the big scale of things, America is a fairly underpopulated country. Where I came up with that number I just took the population density of the uh, United Kingdom and said, well, let's take the available landmass of the U.S., populate it up to that population density, and guess what? We have room for billions of of people um, because so much of the U.S. is uh, underpopulated, underdeveloped, and and so forth, at least compared to the U.K., which you don't think of as as being sort of a soylent green kind of country with uh, too too many people in it. Right. So the proper approach, if I if I read you correctly, is you let you let the correct policy determine the numbers, not the numbers determine the correct policy. That's right. Okay. Now you say that, and I'm quoting you here. We should debate what the optimal terms are. Again, terms is distinct from numbers, so that the vast majority of immigrants are a net benefit to the U.S. End quote. Okay. Let's talk about how you do that. One of the arguments you always hear is that we've got to be careful when it comes to immigration because the last thing that we want is people coming here and living off of the welfare system. So there's really two questions from that. The first is how widespread of a problem is that in reality? How often do we see it happening? The second is how do you structure public policy to prevent it from occurring or at least reduce the instances of it occurring? Yeah, and so now we've got three points hanging here. Let me, let me first – Come back to what you said about numbers. Um, You see the current immigration, a lot of what's wrong is Congress has decided, oh, we'll let in, I don't know the number, 100,000 H-1B visas without really thinking about, well, what's supply and demand there and and how many should we have? If they had rules of the game, uh, you know, you've got X, X degree and X job offer you can come in, then we wouldn't have a lot of the pathologies um, we have now. So then uh, on to your second point. uh, so one of the most common things people worry about is, oh, what about social programs? Uh, and first, yes, it turns out that really isn't the problem uh, people think. Uh, we spend a lot on our social programs, but uh, unfortunately, almost all that goes to U.S. citizens. Uh, people don't come here from foreign countries uh, largely to, to benefit from our social programs. So it's, it's not really on the budget a big thing. Now, of course, if we flung open the borders, maybe it would be. But I think it's... Uh, yeah, you know, if that's the problem, then let's solve the problem uh, as it is. 
you can easily say, look, you can come to the U.S., but you can't use social programs for five years, or you can come to the U.S. and you have to post a bond, um, you know, $10,000 at the border, and uh, if you end up getting thrown in jail or on welfare or whatever, then you, then you forfeit your bond and go home or something of the sort. Uh, so I, I think limiting the use of social programs is uh, is not uh, is not that hard. And when you look at current immigration policy, it's not uh, aimed at that goal. It's kind of funny. Current immigration policy lets in family members whether they're working or not, but doesn't let in people who are working and paying taxes. So you're certainly not going to defend that structure on the basis of we want to save money on social programs. It's a structure almost designed to spend money on social programs. Get you know, get one person in and then bring all your relatives uh, who may be old or sick or whatever, which good or bad is, is expensive on the social programs. All right. Next area of concern – you hear this all the time, especially with the, the present state of employment markets. The argument that you bring in this foreign labor, John, and it's inevitably going to drive down wages for American workers. I mean, why would you do it in general, but especially why would you do it in this economic environment? How do you respond to that criticism? Yeah, no, I think that is a uh, – you know, that's the most salient criticism, and, and it is true in some areas in the U.S., uh, foreign workers do compete with American workers. Um, but um, protectionism is bad always and everywhere, I think, is the answer. Uh, and um, so, it's, again, it's a story we tell with a lot less, although not zero, uh, impact. Um, many foreigners who come here come here for work that Americans don't want, uh, can't uh, have better things to do with their time and so forth. So um, certainly agricultural labor is a classic example. There just isn't that much substitution between Americans and foreigners um, on some of those labor markets. Um, the other problem is, is like all protection, it, it maybe works for a little while but not for long. So if you if you say we won't let workers in so that American factory workers have get, can get better wages, well, then the American factory owners can locate the factory overseas, and eventually uh, capital meets labor and, and the same problem happens. Um, so I uh, and, and third, think about that. Think about what we're saying here. That the way to make Americans rich is to take money from poor Mexicans. We, we certainly would not have a program where we send the army over the border with guns to take money from poor Mexicans and give it to to uh, poor Americans. But that is what you're doing when when you forbid immigration. So I know it's not a, that big an issue. Um, and uh, it doesn't work in the long run anyway. We can't wall ourselves off from the world economy. So I don't think that uh, reason is a reason to stop immigration. And at least you can, you can be sensible about it. Uh, there is no reason to stop. So my MBA students uh, come from China and India. They want to come to America, stop business, start businesses, hire other people. We don't let them. Now, now, the plight of a factory worker has, has nothing to do with why you don't want to let a software engineer start a new company in the U.S., which is, is what we're doing, and it's completely ridiculous. So even if we're going to keep some sort of wage protection, uh, that doesn't argue for, for keeping out the whole swath of people who we now keep out. Right, and that leads you to the next question I actually wanted to ask is when you're talking about those MBA students, for for instance, there's a line of thinking. It's really more cultural than <clears throat> economic that says, you know, look, it's one thing to talk 
about those people that are highly skilled, highly educated, they're doing you know cutting edge technological or financial or medical work. People who by the nature of their endeavors are probably going to be absorbed into elite American society and it's another thing entirely when you talk about the people who are going to be working on farms in the Central Valley of California, partially because of the issue of assimilation and the argument that if you allow in sufficient numbers of people from a given country or culture, that you run the risk that rather than becoming American in a cultural sense, they create these little enclaves for their home culture and you end up with a sort of balkanization, at least a sort of societal instability. How, how should we handle that argument? Is, a, is it a legitimate concern? Is it something that just sort of you know, irons itself out over time? How do, how do you approach it? Yeah, um, uh, I would. Uh, we have this picture of high-tech entrepreneurs and, and uh, farm laborers. Uh, most immigrants are in between. I mean, the average immigrant comes and right. wants to start a hardware store or a 7-Eleven or something of the sort. And there is this picture people have of a finite number of jobs and and, and factories, but in fact, you know, people come and they start new businesses. Uh, you know, we when our uh, ancestors came here, they didn't take jobs from the American Indians. They took a whole lot of other stuff from the American Indians, but it wasn't like that. You know, the factories were here and we kicked them out. Um, but yeah, now on, on the cultural business, yeah, you know, all these Irish and Italians moving in with their Catholic religion and a strange language, we got to put a stop to that, right? <laughs> That's what people were saying in the in the 1890s and, and 1900s, and. Uh, now, the amazing thing about America is, is it's still a generation or two, and, and people do seem to assimilate. That's the, the genius of our country. Uh, I'm not sure the federal government is that good on, uh, on culture, uh, on, on keeping our culture and social values alive anyway. That, um, uh, in the broader scheme of things, the federal government seems to be doing a pretty rotten job of maintaining social values, cohesive culture, uh, our respect for our legal traditions and so forth. So, uh, to, to put the government in charge of that through immigration when it's failing so abysmally on that in the public schools and elsewhere, I, I don't think is uh, is a reason to keep doing the, the silly things we're doing. John, I have to put a question to you from your piece in Peregrine because you know, particularly given the heated terms on which this debate often takes place, that this will be controversial. Um, you write, quoting you again, 11 million people are here working hard, paying taxes, owning property, but scurrying around in semi-legal status. This is a national embarrassment. We criticize other nations for apartheid when they deny legal status to people who have been living there for decades or even generations, yet one in 20 people living within U.S. borders suffers the same fate, end quote. Okay, you you know the response here. First of all, I, I think those who dith- disagree with you will object to the apartheid label, but even if they granted you that, They'd say, John, if, if this is apartheid, it is voluntary apartheid. These people have that status because they made a conscious decision to violate American immigration laws rather than to go through the approved channels. So what's the response? What's the argument there? Is it that because the underlying laws don't make sense or are so dysfunctional that their violation is superfluous or if not superfluous, less serious than other legal violations? Help us understand your perspective on this. Yeah, so um, I think apartheid was a poor choice of words. I, I want to take that one back. <laughs> that that was a system of of living separately, not a system of living together. It's uh, I had more in mind the way um, you know most Gulf states uh, states allow Palestinians to come and work, or, or Philipp- people from the Philippines to come and, and work for for 
uh, years for generations even, but never grants them citizenship and, and threatens to kick them out at a moment's notice. because They have better legal status than the people who come pick our vegetables uh, do in the U.S. Um, it's attractive to say, you know, you ought to follow the law, um, but the, you know, the answer is the law is an ass. Uh, our country has passed all sorts of silly laws. If I were living in the 1800s, I, I hope I would have had the courage to violate the Fugitive Slave Act, even though it was the law. And I think many of our, our listeners would, would feel the same way about many of the silly laws uh, our government has passed. Um, now, there is this, there's this you said, uh, oh, they should have gone through the legal channels. There are no legal channels. If you live in many countries, Mexico, India, China in particular, and, and you say, you, you you know, I want to come to the U.S., I want to, I, I, I've read your Declaration of Independence, I've read your Constitution, this is the free society I want to join, you simply may not. There is, there is it, it'll be decades before you can get in uh, on legal channels. So there, the sense that these people should have followed the law, there is no way for them to do it, and I, I think... We need to keep that in mind. Now, um, there's a fairness. There are people waiting, which I agree with. But um, what I would do is, is simply let figure out the rules, and then anyone can come in who wants to, and anyone who's already here who qualifies under those rules can join, and then there's no question of fairness. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> you open the floodgates and all shall come in, and we don't have to argue about who got to come first and who got to come second. So final question to that point, asking you to be a little bit of a political soothsayer here. I realize I'm taking you out of your area of specialty, but I mean you read the newspapers just like everybody else. To, to what extent – you know, we've had this debate going on in a major way for about a decade, maybe a little under since George W. Bush pushed this in his second term. Now President Obama is pushing it. Um, do you feel that the trend lines are moving in the right direction towards the kind of immigration reform that, that you're sympathetic to, or are you pessimistic that something approaching rational reform, if not there, uh, can happen in the near future? Well, actually, we've been at it, I think, for about 250 years. Yes, I, I take your point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, everybody forgets. Uh, Roosevelt, I think, started a speech to the Daughters of the American Revolution, and his first words were, my fellow immigrants. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, we, we, you know, we were all in this boat at some point, and and uh, and most of us, uh, certainly my ancestors, could not have come here under current immigration law. Uh, so I am lucky that it wasn't the way it was. Uh, what are the trends? Uh, I, I think what we have is so dysfunctional and so obviously unfair that uh, I, I hope people are figuring out that one way or another this has to be fixed in some way and. I still have enough faith in America that you know once most of the population says this is crazy, we need to fix it one way or another, that some sort of fix will happen. And, and so I am seeing uh, more and more of that. But I, I always uh, – you know, I'm an optimist, so I always think the world's coming the way I think it ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be looking forward to seeing how it plays out and hopefully talking to you about it again in the future. Our guest has been John Cochran. Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.